Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by man. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the second sermon in a series that we're introducing this semester called Discovering or Rediscovering Jesus. And if we're going to rediscover Jesus, one thing we have to discover or rediscover is what the kingdom is all about. As a matter of fact, the opening part of most Gospels begins with John the Baptist introducing Jesus by saying, the kingdom is at hand, repent and be baptized. And then in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus begins early on by saying this, here's the kingdom of heaven, and he does it by describing the words of the Beatitudes. There's three assumptions embedded in Jesus' words when he pronounces the kingdom in the Beatitudes. The first one is this. There were people waiting for the kingdom. When he said that, he anticipated that there were a lot of people thinking to themselves, where's the kingdom? It is coming after all, isn't it? As a matter of fact, a part of his culture, the Jewish culture, was to expect the kingdom of God to dawn on the face of the earth at some point and some time. So Jesus is anticipating the assumption, which is, where's the kingdom? And Jesus is introducing that. But not only the Jews, they weren't just waiting for the kingdom. As a matter of fact, it's part of a, an intuitive sense in the heart of every human being. In the history of the world, maybe not articulated quite like this, the kingdom of God, but a peaceable kingdom. Everybody's looking for that perfect kingdom. And as a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke these words, some people might have said to themselves, hey, Jesus, we've already got it. It's called Rome. It's a great place. We can go everywhere we want to go with paved Roman roads. What we call interstate commerce was empire commerce. The world was better than it had ever been. There was an assumption, though, that the kingdom was going to be ushered in at some point by people who were Jewish and, and other people. There's also an assumption that Jesus tapped into when he said the kingdom is right here, right now. There was an assumption that somebody was going to usher it in. In the Jewish mentality, it meant the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come and introduce the kingdom to the world and everything would be fine. And in ancient times, they might not have called it the Messiah. They might have called it Caesar. 
As a matter of fact, the cult of Caesar was to worship the emperor, the one who brought in this peaceable kingdom, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But it's not so unfamiliar to us today, is it? Everybody's looking for the kingdom. And frequently we attach ourselves to find the kingdom to a particular person, a leader who's going to bring it in. And we hope that that person will bring in the kingdom. So the assumption is a kingdom's coming. The assumption is somebody's going to bring it in. There's a third assumption that I think Jesus was working on when he talked to these people. And the assumption was this. If a kingdom's coming and somebody's bringing it in, there's got to be principles to govern the kingdom. As a matter of fact, people come from all over the world to this, can we call it kingdom, this nation of the United States. And the tradition, of course, not so much anymore, was that they sailed into New York City and they saw the Statue of Liberty at Ellis Island. And eventually they were sworn in as citizens, pledging their allegiance to the United States of America, the Constitution that we live by, the law that's above every human being. They saw governing principles that they placed their hopes in. Just like back then, principles that guided the kingdom. And Jesus basically is saying in the Beatitudes, the kingdom is here, I'm bringing it, and here's what it means. Here are the principles, just as you heard read. I did a series on the Beatitudes, and I'm not going to redo that. Back in 2009, I'm just going to use the Beatitudes for the next few minutes to introduce the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which, by the way, I'm using interchangeably because I think the New Testament does. The first thing about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the Beatitudes and beyond is this. The kingdom is the blessing of God. Okay? Now, that's really important. The kingdom is the blessing of God. The kingdom is not us doing the right thing so that the blessing of God will happen. The kingdom is the blessing or the presence of God. So when we look at the Beatitudes and we think about what it instructs us to do and how it calls us to live, we're not looking at it as sort of a bonus check. If we do this, God will be around. If we do this, God's presence will be here. The blessing is the kingdom. We enter into the blessing by entering into the kingdom, and then we live our lives according to the Beatitudes to experience the kingdom. That's incredibly important because sometimes we think we can initiate the kingdom and we can change the world, and we can't. People have tried for centuries to do it. As a matter of fact, there's more than you can imagine scattered across history called failed utopias. Places, societies that were supposed to be perfect because they followed the rules and they brought in their kingdom. You know what the closest one to us here in Indiana is? Anybody know New Harmony, Indiana? Yeah? New Harmony, Indiana, a little town way down to the south where the Wabash River and the Ohio River come together. And about, oh, two years there, a group called the Owenites did their best to create a perfect utopia. It lasted about as long as most perfect utopias do, a couple of years, and Robert Owens moved on. The experiment was a failure, as it always has been. There's a lot left in New Harmony. Wonderful history down there, by the way, and a great little inn you can stay in if you want to go down there, and it's really peaceful, and it's a wonderful place to be, but it's no utopia because it doesn't exist, that thing called utopia. Only thing left is a, a chapel or a sanctuary that's open to the air. 
no roof on top. It's a roofless sanctuary. And a tribute to a dead theologian called Paul Tillich. That's what's left of the so-called utopia that they tried to create back in the 19th century. We think somehow that we can bring in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, no, you don't bring in the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God. And when you enter the kingdom of God, you find the blessing of God. So the kingdom of God is the blessing of God. Second thing, the kingdom requires participation. You'll see that throughout the Gospels. The kingdom requires participation. It doesn't just exist. You're invited to be a part of the kingdom. You're invited to recognize your position in the kingdom. That is quite frankly, to serve the king. If you want to be a part of the kingdom, you enter this kingdom as people from foreign lands used to enter peaceable kingdoms and you submit yourself to the king and you serve the king. And in the service to the king, you enjoy the presence of the king and the presence of the kingdom. You must participate in the kingdom in order for the kingdom to come. We do that still today. But Jesus calls us to something other than an allegiance to a particular kingdom like our allegiance to the United States and its constitution. Jesus says in order to experience the kingdom, what you do straight up is you follow me. What's participation look like? It means to love me and to follow me. When you love me and you follow me, when you walk with me. Not a static reality, an ongoing existence. When you walk with me, you experience the kingdom. So the kingdom is God's blessing, and the kingdom comes through participation. The kingdom, third, is counterintuitive, really. It's peculiar. Um, I use that word specifically. As a matter of fact, St. Peter used it speaking about the people of God in his epistles, he said, you're the peculiar people. You're, you're, you're some odd ducks, I want to tell you. You march to the beat of a different drummer. This is all my paraphrase. You're not normal. You're peculiar. The kingdom of God is peculiar. I mean, really? Who would start a kingdom by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek? And who would say to the people, we're about to begin the kingdom. Blessed are you if you're persecuted. Shout for joy. This is a peculiar kingdom. It's counterintuitive because it's not what we intuit a kingdom to be. And it's countercultural because everything around us tells us the kingdom you want to be a part of, it doesn't look like that. I've got another kingdom for you. So this kingdom is peculiar, counterintuitive, and countercultural. The kingdom is also now and in the future. It's both now and it's in the future. There, there's two major mistakes that theologians and biblical scholars make because theologians and biblical scholars are all about focusing on a particular point, right? Um, that's the way scholarship works. It's rather narrow. And I've said routinely that every sermon's a heresy. I don't mean I'm a heretic. What I mean by that is every sermon is focusing on one particular point to the exclusion of another point. So if all you do is focus on that one particular point to the exclusion of all else, you're getting off balance, and that's heresy. It's off-balancedness, right? 
So frequently what scholars do is they get off balance as it relates to the kingdom of God. They either say something like this, the kingdom of God is present right here, right now, and it's our responsibility to bring it in. And if you work hard enough, you can advance the kingdom of God. Think social reformers. We can do it. Let's just call ourselves to the task because the kingdom of God is here right now and we can create the utopia. That's, that's one extreme. You know what the other extreme is? The kingdom of God is not here. The kingdom of God is in the future. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God being in the future if you listen carefully so you know it's not here. What you're supposed to do is get it right, right now. I mean, you're supposed to buy into the kingdom, or to put it another way, punch your ticket for heaven. Say the right words. Confess Jesus. Experience his presence in your heart. And someday the kingdom will come. But the main point is you avoid judgment and you get to heaven. And the future is just waiting. Now look, there's nothing wrong with either one of those except when they are improperly focused. Of course Christ calls us to follow him and to experience eternal life right now. And the promise is eternal life for the future. Of course God calls us through Christ to do our best to advance the kingdom. But if we take one or the other, we become unbalanced. So as we think about the kingdom together, let's constantly keep the here and now and the future in balance as we live for God. Because that's what God has called us to. Um, more years ago than I'd like to admit, I was going to seminary at that time, uh, Yale University Divinity School, and I was uh, studying hard, and we were going to a church, uh, my wife and I and the children, um, and the pastor who was there was really old. He was tall, he had white hair, and he was very distinguished, and he was very folksy. As a matter of fact, I don't recall that he had a seminary degree at all. He might have graduated college but he was a great pastor. And on one occasion, he started his sermon by saying something that had happened to him that particular week. He said, I was at the barbershop. It's back when we went to the barbershop. I was at the barbershop, and while I was at the barbershop, the boys at the barbershop started talking about heaven. And he said, and then they turned to me. We're going to put the preacher on the spot. And the barber said to me, so, preacher, Tell us, where is heaven? And Pastor Westerholm said, I just looked at them and I said, heaven is wherever God is. Heaven's wherever God is. Now, there couldn't have been a greater contrast between me and Pastor Westerholm. I was young, overeducated, and arrogant. He was old, and by my standards, uneducated, and full of humility and wisdom. And with that simple response, he summarized one of the most salient theological points that theologians have done their best to describe over and over again. He actually brought two polar extremes together, and he said, where is heaven? Wherever God is. Let me use it for this particular occasion. 
Where is the kingdom of God? Where's the kingdom of heaven? Wherever God is. And sometimes that's right here. And other times that's in your home. And sometimes it's at your work. And sometimes it's at school. And you can be sure that one day it will be complete in the future. That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, it's right here among you. Now you might say to yourself, he was talking to Pharisees when he said that. Yeah, he was. He was talking to his disciples too. And he was saying it's present right here among you because he was standing there. I know that. But he was saying more. He was saying, as the Apostle Paul would later say, that the body of Christ is present in spite of the fact that the physical body of Christ is gone. So when the body of Christ is present, when the kingdom is present in the body of Christ, God is present in the person of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is here now, and it is in the future. Jesus described the kingdom with a numerous amount of stories. One story he said of the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It's a tiny little snippet of a seed. But when dropped in the ground, it becomes one of the largest of trees. Have you ever felt like smaller than a mustard seed? As a Christian? Wherever you are? Have you thought there's no way that this mustard seed me with my tiny little raspy voice can proclaim the kingdom of God? Plant it and let God do the work. Jesus also said the kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out and sows seed. And back then they didn't punch it into the ground in neat little rows so the seed would come up with fertilizer. They took a big bag and they just hurled it as they walked all around. And Jesus said it's going to land everywhere. As a matter of fact, it's going to land in the rocks. It's going to land here. It's going to land there. And some of it will never bear fruit. But the guy continues to throw it out, can I say, liberally. He just throws it. And he lets the soil do the work. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. You know, that reminds us of, it reminds us that it's our job to spread the kingdom of God as much as we can, even if it feels like a little mustard seed, to spread the kingdom of God as much as we can and not to worry one whit about whether or not it takes seed and germinates and becomes a plant. That's the work of God. So we spread it liberally. We pray that it will grow and God does the work. And the kingdom of God on another occasion, Jesus said, is like a child or a servant. Can you imagine two positions in that society? There are lower on the totem pole than that, that are virtually nothing. Jesus says, that's where the kingdom of God comes. So do you feel like a child? You feel that you're in a servant's role? You feel exhausted by spreading the seed and wondering whether or not it's going to take root. Do you feel like a tiny little mustard seed yourself? Just spread the kingdom of God and let it do its work. How does it happen? When you accept the invitation to be a part of it. How does it happen? When you actually live it. Then, in the words of Jesus and the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. Go out today. 
spread the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kingdom, uh, which is eternal. That means it doesn't just stop here, and it doesn't just begin here. You've invited us to be a part of it. You've given us declarations concerning what it is, and you've told us that it's our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom to share it with others. So we pray this week, Lord, as we walk into our world, you will allow us to be kingdom bearers, those who bear the kingdom of God to the world. We know, Lord, sometimes that we feel completely inadequate to the task, but we also know that if we follow, it will happen. We thank you for the times where we realize that we recognize the fruit of our labors, and we pray for faith to believe that the fruit of our labors will someday emerge, even when right now it doesn't seem to. And we pray, well, Lord, that you'll help us to get over ourselves, to get over ourselves and to serve you. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.